Okay, today I'm talking to Paul Chandler-Burns, who is based in Newmarket. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me today, Paul. Um, if I got this correct, you're an ex-betting industry employee, semi-professional punter, who filters a well-known tipster's bets to profit. You bet on reality TV and football. Have I missed anything? I just mentioned I do the golf majors as well in the Ryder Cup. I think there's some nice edges there um, with the bookies favours. But other than that, yes, most of the umbrella covered there as far as the betting world goes. And you've so you're a successful punter. How long have you been making it pay? Um, I came off um, the cruise ships that I work on now. I left them in 2004 and I bet professionally uh, full time for about nearly 10 years on that score. And then as professionals experience, it becomes more and more difficult to get a decent bet on, taking a price, all, all the edges that you have get shut down particularly. Um, I received letters from bookmakers uh, labeling me as an an, inva an invaluable client, I was described as. <laughs> so it's like- Valuable. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that's a, a nice stigma to be told. It's, it's almost like a badge of honor at first. Then when you get more, you, it makes betting difficult. So. Um, when it became more and more difficult to make it a living full-time, I went back to my work job, which is in an entertainment field. And then I work uh, in effect part-time now. I still bet, but not as much as I used to on a daily basis. Okay, so when did, you, when did your um, sort of interest in gambling sort of start? It's, um, I was a weird kid who liked horse racing. Kids are supposed to play out in the street. <laughs> I remember Red Rum winning the Grand National and having 20 pence on to win £1.20 and thinking, that's five times my money that I used to have. So that was the interest stemmed as a kid. Um, I started working in the industry in the early 90s. Um, I was working for the Tote. I moved into their trading room um, in the 90, up to about sort of 92, 93, where I think, I think at the time then betting was real and, and you did layer price and bookmakers used odds compilers more and you took a view. Whereas nowadays, I think it's more algorithms and just having people bet on smartphones and trying to bring as much volume in rather than taking a stand. I think that's one of the things that the industry's lost. When, when you say the tote, I assume you mean tote credit as opposed to the booth on course. Yeah, tote, tote credit had um, numerous offices around the country and then it all became centralised in Wigan. So um, the people who sold the houses in London and moved to Wigan got a right result. Um, but for us, um, the, 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 it was probably the first time a, a huge place was run. It was all computerized. And you could see a lot more information. You could see markets live before your eyes. And that probably triggered my interest. Um, I remember working there and seeing this small percentage of people who consistently made it pay. And while I worked in the industry, I was also fascinated by this, I'd say probably three or 4% who consistently made profits from it and thought, is, is that a future way you could make this game pay? And what was the, what was the Tokes attitude to, to people that seems like quite a high percentage actually of people that made it pay i mean one, once it went centralized to the computer outside um the industry became a lot smarter as well i mean i think that first year we made some horrible ricks uh, because we were mixing between the old ledger and paper into becoming computerized I remember uh, we made a huge mistake once with a, an athlete who uh, she got married a surname had changed we were laying 14 to 1 for her to win her gold medal whereas nobody had checked there was no internet instant feedback. It's like, okay, this girl's actually just got married and names changed and she's probably the best in the world. So ricks like that were made. Um, I remember Alicia winning an Oaks trial and we, we didn't adjust. Um, and people upstairs who run the computers just laid her at 25 to one, even though she'd won the trial and, and should have been about three to one at the time. So it was a, probably that first few years we worked in Wigan, 
was a time for a punter where there was mistakes being made because the two systems were being married together. And uh, in the, um, these days, anyone that took advantage of a rip like that, they'd be gone, wouldn't they? What was the attitude towards them in those days? Um, you, you, you became on a watch list. There was, a, there was an index card of about 30 to 40 punters who were on the, on the watch list. And if they bet, first of all, it was the, is there a yard connection? Is there a home address connection? And everything became quicker and more efficient. And then any mistake became a full report and a full investigation so you didn't get stung by it again. So when you, when you started at Wigan, so were all of you like went in there at the same time together? Yeah, so the, the offices shut down nationally. And then the head office, I think Wigan gave the tote, because it was supposed to go to Ireland originally. And then Wigan offered the tote free rental for the building, which swung the decision. So the the office there became a huge building of, on a Saturday, you had about 300 telephonists. You had uh, eight in the trading room. And the upstairs was the, the data and computer side of things. It was just a massive complex. So, you did, so there was well, there was no old sweats there. So you all sort of learned together that some of these people were definitely worth following in. Yeah, I mean, you, you got a, a list, almost like a league table, and you knew your your premier clients where every every account became instantly accessible by a computer. You could see their bets, you could see their patterns, you could see their yield. So how many how many punters were there that uh, when they called and had a bet, all of a sudden everybody had gastroenteritis? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there was there was a local shop. Um, it was an independent shop, Webs, and Webs got hit by a few of ours some days. Where um, it was particularly when um, Martin Pipe was training, and Pipe's owners had big accounts, and they'd have uh, say four horses running in the day, and they'd back three of them and not back the other one. And we would back the treble down the road. One of us was allowed a trading break, it was called. <laughs> so would the would the firm sort of take it, you know, use that information? Would they would they push out the one that obviously wasn't being backed? That sort of yeah, thing would be. It, it became invaluable for a tool like that. There was um, a well-known owner who I think he, the, the whole turtle was called Enemy Action and he owned that one. And he was probably Pipe's top man. And quite often, if, if he was backing two out of the three or three out of the four on the day, then the other horse would fail and you, you'd see an explanation on TV that didn't act on the ground or the course didn't suit him. I'm like, mm, you, can, you can say what you like about that. <laughs> so uh, did, I mean, obviously you guys are all suddenly making, making a few quid betting. Mm -hmm. um, did you, did you sort of struggle to get your bets on? Um, so, again, it was a time where I think bookies had a bit more about them, where they, where they would lay a bet. I mean, what would happen normally, I'd say within half an hour, um, a lot of bookies would catch on to what was happening. And you, we had um, we had screens from other bookies in our office as well. Are any red flags, any watch your markets? And the horse that we'd marked up, William Hills, probably within the 10, 15 minutes would have it all managed in their shops to watch out for a movement on this kind of horse. So, a lot of firms, I'd say you had about a half an hour window for hot information before the red flag and the cashiers and the, the shops had been informed. So, um, I mean, at this point, you were winning money betting. Did it ever come to the point where you were just going to work to get the information and the, the betting was your primary income? It was a bit of a fusion between the two. I mean, you considered that if you were that inside of the industry, you should make it pay. You had that strong an insight into what was going on. Um, I think a lot of people mistake gambling. The, the fact that long-term you can make it pay if you study it and you've got to commit to it. I mean, we, we, had a, we had a benefit there where we got Gallup reports. We had people on the Gallups in the morning who would phone in and say things they've seen. So at that point, I'd say 20, 25% of my income was supplemented through my betting.
Okay, so the interesting thing about this, and I was speaking to somebody recently that was talking about inside information. A lot of the professional punters that I've spoken to in the past, they say they absolutely, totally and utterly ignore any inside information if they're purely form students. So, but the one sort of hearing recently is, it, you know, if you haven't got the inside information, it's going to be a lot more difficult to win, isn't it? Mm. I think... Um... On form, I think the higher up the chain it is, the more you can rely on the form. I think when you go into Royal Ascot in a week or so, all the horses are all going for this race. They've all been primed for it. It's it's a fourteen runner race, and all fourteen are going for it. I think on a on a Chelmsford six fifteen race on a Tuesday night, if you can find out that a certain horses work well and it's first time out, you can have an edge at the lower end. Uh, obviously, markets are a little bit more sensitive, but I think down the chain, I think definitely information pays handicappers that are laid, uh, you know, first time in a handicap type horses who are on a better mark, that's where your edge can be on that side of the racing. Now, you mentioned that you're in, uh, you get Newmarket Gallup reports. We'll talk about Newmarket in a bit. Um, but what, so when did you decide to shed the blanket of um, having a job <laughs> and, go, and go full-time professional? Because obviously, if you've got a job, you know, you've got all your bills paid and you take all the stress is taken off. So when did you decide to actually become a professional punter so early 2000s um going back to my youth now i started dating i was an entertainment manager i was dating a dancer and i told her very early on that my ambition was to be off ships and to gamble for a living full-time and make it pay and i had a business plan written that i'm kind of a bit of a geek in numbers and and, and spreadsheets etc so i told her up front because i thought if anybody i'm dating seriously should know my life plan because it's not recommended for anybody um so when we got engaged and got married, I lived in Manchester originally, and she lived in Cambridge. And 12 miles from Cambridge is Newmarket, which seemed a great base for somebody who was going to be horse-based. So um, I, I got married, we bought a house in Newmarket, and we live just off Hamilton Road, uh, close to the Gallops, which is very useful. That's where Barney Curley lived on the bottom of Hamilton Road. Uh, Barney Curley used to shop, in, and you, it was very difficult to have a conversation with him in the shop. Though. <laughs> yeah, I don't imagine he was going to mark your card. No, so... <laughs> so but I mean, you said that a lot of that your your profit was coming from, you know, knowing what clever people were backing. Mm. So did that information dry up when you left? So did, then did you have to live off your wits and pick your own winners? Is, you know, so did a little you get bit more that? of that. And having connections in Newmarket helped. Um, you, you get a bit of an insight. At the time, one of the biggest angles for profit was um, Bet365's big marketing campaign was they were first up with their odds and they were always... Um, sometimes very, and this is all pre-Betfair days where Betfair didn't shape the market as much as it does now. But Bet365 would be very early up to their two-year-olds and the unraced horses. And there was a lot of profit could be made there, just knowing how horses worked on the gallops. You get to know in Newmarket how they're shaping. Um, Bet365 was the first account that I got closed when it was, um, they didn't like my morning methodology. <laughs> right. So, okay. So you, what was your, what was your angle yeah, that but was it still so? It's still inside information. Was the basic was the angle? Were you a, a good judge of the form? I think first of all, uh, if the handicapping and the um, unraced two-year-olds definitely inside information based for being here helped. Uh, I also I think good judge on on value and numbers. I mean, horses. A lot of my betting on principle is I don't like backing a horse if it hasn't done it previously. If if it's run a distance four times and it's been placed twice and lost the other two. I don't see that as a viable betting opportunity. Um, I'd sooner find a horse in the race that's won over that trip. So a lot of my betting angle and my approach to a race is 
finding a horse that's done something against a horse that hasn't. And um, I think that's where my numerical advantage comes in and my percentages. Okay, now, how long, just going back to the, the toe, how long did it take to sort the wheat from the chaff from the, from the you know, the punters that were winning? Because people have purple patches, and that, but they're yeah. still, you know, useless. So how long did it take to sort of filter that what was good and what was bad? I think for myself working there, about, I'd say within six months, you could learn whose accounts were hot. We had one of the traders at William Hill was much respected, and he would quite often go for a big each way double, always around sort of 9.45 in the morning, where obviously the calls would come in and the message was there. His, his each way doubles were always worth marking. And you got a, you got a mention of if Mr. So-and-so had come in, the bet had come in, which worth a check yourself at that point. And then one of the traders amongst our room was allowed a trading break for 15 minutes, which was the unofficial working term. Did you have, I mean, would you allow accounts to remain open purely to get the information, even, even probably against the, the, the firm's, you know, wishes? Sometimes, yes, and it made sense. Um, so Lord Wyatt was our chairman. And Lord Wyatt some, Weeford, yeah. That's some fantastic conversations of why people won and why it made sense to keep them open. You had, you had somebody who was like a head lad at a yard. If he used to bet 25s or £30, and he was coming on for £100 one day, you knew you had a live one there. So those those yard connections and the people who were close to stable bases, um, sometimes if you're losing on their account, you can make a hell of a lot more by then shortening or lengthening others in the race that you've got that info from. Okay, right. We're going to talk about uh, Newmarket and the perils of the whisperers from there in the next part. Okay. Right. Okay, Paul. Um, Newmarket. I love Newmarket. I'll make any excuse to go there. But one thing I have noticed is there's a proliferation of betting shops, which leads me to believe that most of the stable lads are clueless. So once again, I mean, as with the with the um, filtering the information from the customers coming in, you know, on the accounts, how did you know what was what? Obviously, Barney Curley wasn't telling you in the shop. So how did you know which stable lad to listen to and which one not to? You got you got one word maximum from Barney Curley. How the horses would go, all good. That's it. <laughs> That's as much as you got from there. Um, I've got two now that I pay for monthlies, and they were well worth it. And I'm, again, I keep stats on all of their advices, all of what they tell me. So I've I've changed them over the years, but there's one that I've kept loyal all the way through, and he's he's hot on some certain yards. Um, the main thing about Newmarket is exactly what you say that in march of newmarket if you went to any betting shop you could meet 15 guys who have a wonder horse in their yard and this is the year it's all going to change and the same guys are there in may and the horse hasn't lived up to it and the horse hasn't refused to reproduce what it brought on the gallop so that's the danger of newmarket is there a if everybody's an expert okay so now you're you're based in newmarket but you spend a lot of time at sea mm -hmm. on the cruise ships which we'll talk about yeah. in a bit so what um what is your sort of What's your angle now? Are you just betting horses or are you laying them? Use exchanges more? Um, I use the exchanges more just for volume, um, just for size of bets. I mean, I've had one bet today. It was uh, £60 each way. And on the bookies this morning, I had to use three different firms to get £20 each way on with the three of them. So that's that's the challenge of internet betting. So if I want a decent bet, it's generally bet fair now. Um, the markets tend to be a bit more solid later on in the morning. Um, when I'm home, again, I bet horses pretty much daily, uh, more so on the principal meetings. Um, and then football-wise, most of my football betting is done in August. I do a lot of anti-post pre-season. And then 
I'd say probably 75% of my bets in football are all done before the season starts. Okay, so you preempted me a bit there because I was going to ask about your football later, but now you've mentioned it, we'll talk about that. So everybody says that the football, especially in the upper leagues, is tight. The betting's really tight on it. You've only got people like Tony Bloom that are chiseling it out to, you know, tiny margins and betting on the Asian handicaps and that that can make it pay. So you've obviously debunked that theory because you are successful with it. So what's your angle with the football? What are you looking for? And how would you decide on what anti-post bets to have? So football-wise, um, when I was betting full-time, I used to bet a lot more on football and realised that it was that I wasn't getting a margin. So a, a good year was 1%, 2%. And again, Tony Bloom, who is betting in 10,000, 20,000s a game, you, you, I think you need that sort of money on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're back in teams at evens and five to six and trying to make it pay, I didn't see an angle. So my view was anti-post football where... A lot of it is opinion. A lot of preseason comes down to opinion, particularly lower divisions. Um, the best bet I had this year was Leighton Orient at 16 to 1 um, to win League Two on a weird concept I have, which is um, price profiling. Um, here's, a, here's a weird fact for this season uh, League Two has been won in the last 10 years four times the price of a team was between 14 and 16 to 1. So Leighton Orient were the only team in that bracket. So I thought that's worth an angle where, if you, in effect, a tips has given you a 40% hit rate. I'll take the one team that fits in that category this year. So Leighton Orient was the bet, and it, and it was a sweet bet. I think the market was held up by Stockport County, who, because they had a big budget, a lot of bookies went very short Stockport. There's, um, there's going to be people with howls of derision about that, but I've interviewed a race stats app work on a similar basis for horse racing. Mm -hmm. And they, they make it pay, regardless of what people say, they make it pay. Uh, so would there be any other sorts of information you take on board for the football, apart from those sort of stats? Um, I, I like a tournament up front. Um, I've got Manchester City this year, finally, but I've had them for many other years for Champions League. I just think it has to come good eventually. Um, I didn't think they could possibly lose it last year and it went horribly wrong. So I'm not counting chickens yet, but... I do a lot of my football betting is done from just reading up and being savvy of uh, transfer news, team selections, et cetera. Um, and once I've got my anti-post bets in August, I'll, I'll keep a managed account whereby um, I had a decent sized bet on Burnley, who I thought very early on in the championship were quite, quite easily going to be the best side in that division. I think they drew about seven of the first 10 games, but football statistic wise there, their goals per game ratio was way under. They should have been winning games they were drawing. I thought they can take this division by storm. So I had a massive bet on them in November this year. Um, you want to say what massive is? Uh, for me, 500. <laughs> that's, that's a fair bet. Um, so what, do you find that bookmakers are, give you a lot more rope on the football? Can you still get on the, the fixed odds or do you still have to, you know, you still have to bet on the exchanges for these things? Football, um, a lot less, um, a lot less fear. I think with that, that the, the horses. If you're taking five, six to one about a, a race on red car on Wednesday, straight away they're looking to cut the price within ten or fifteen minutes. Will be four to one, seven to two, and you can see it collapse across the line. Bookmakers follow each other, and it's all betfair related. I think football. There's a famous Dickie Bird story where he, not a Dickie Bird, um, Alex Bird story where he wanted to back Manchester United and. He was told because it's Alex Bird, they're going to cut the price. And he said it hasn't won anything on the effing gallops. Is they going to just take the price? So, so I think football, they will take a stand 
um, as long as it's not a lower division sort of Friday night away game, then, then, then there might be something going skullduggery. And going back to, um, you know, your times at Tote Credit, uh, but I suppose back in those days, it was a minimum trebles or whatever to bet on the football. So were, were there any sort of lively football punters that you'd follow in or was that too early in the game for that? I think, uh, yeah, so when I was there, it was the it was the second year I worked there was when Sky started um, with, the, with the, the live games and suddenly you were allowed the individual game. If it was on live, you could bet the live game only. Um, I wouldn't say there was particularly live ones. Every now and then you got a weird bet, betting pattern on a lower division game and the the uh, the individuals, uh, Wayne Rooney's dad once called us to open an account and for his first bet, he wanted, I think it was a grand on Tranmere to beat Berry. And we found out much. We gave, I think we gave him 200 on it for a first bet. It was a bit suspicious. And we found out that the Berry players were on a stag do that night. So, so any individual singles on the on the lower divisions with, with a red flag. And it wasn't normally shrewd money. It was normally somebody knew something about an injury or, or some players were up to no good. Okay, so when you... So let me get the time scale straight. You were living in Newmarket and you were already married when you decided to go on cruise ships or were you already doing that before you got married? I did it in two phases. I um, So I left ships in 2004. Um, so I was engaged in 2003, got married and then left the ships. And that was the that was the agreement that that would be my job, which I, I thought I had to be upfront about early. Okay, so why did you choose to do a job where you're at sea, I imagine it's not that easy to keep up with all the information. Probably it is now, but wouldn't have been back in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're in new market. You've got everything around you. Why would you want to go off to sea when you're when you're winning money punting? They they pay me really well, and it's tax free. Tax free, aye aye. <laughs> um, but so that's one of the biggest appeals. So it wasn't a case of you were you, you weren't making enough money as a pro punter, or was it? To, to get um, so. I mortgage. I've cleared the mortgage now, but going back to 2000, uh, 2012, 13 was when I went back to ships. Um, I was struggling to get on the money that I wanted to get on to earn the living I'd become accustomed to. Um, the bets were being cut. The prices weren't available to me. Um, so at that time, it was affecting the money I'd made over a couple of years had been really consistent. It was becoming less consistent. It was becoming more difficult to earn that kind of income just due to restrictions. And would, would, would it be fair to say that basing your success on largely information from people that are transient working in yards, et cetera, is a bit of a precarious one to base a business on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit, I think anything to do with betting is a precarious background unless, I think the, the best advice I'd give to anybody is every bet has to be logged and written down. And there's no fun bets and there's no little bit of investment here, a little bit of a bet because the football's on TV tonight. Everything becomes almost clinical into why you have that bet and it's and every pound is accounted for okay we've got to lighten the, lighten the load a bit just talk a bit about your uh, your work in the cruise ship so they got betting shops on them <laughs> so they do now um it's a new thing they have a sports book app on the phone so i had to teach um i think it was about 15 entertainments managers what spread betting and handicap betting is so i ended up explaining to them that if me and a fat guy were in a race he would have a start because I'm faster than him. And that's how, that's how we understood how handicapping and, and, and giving giving a team a start would work because the the seven-point line for NFL for 15 entertainment managers wasn't wasn't going in. What what are the customers? Are they are they um, UK-based or Americans who are all over the shop or what? 
So Princess Cruises is who I work for. They, they've got 17 ships on the water. They have one ship each year, which is very British based, which is about 90% British clients. Um, that's why we got the Grand National. We can we can do deals with the TV companies because we're a UK based firm now. So um, I'd say the, the ship that I normally work on for the summer is most cruises 90% UK as far as guests go. Okay, so what do you actually do on that? So I'm the entertainment manager. Um, it involves hosting shows um, each night for the main cabaret room, uh, main theatre, and then hosting game shows and events in the other club room. And and you still you still keep actively betting seriously while doing this? Yep. So what I do when I'm on the ships is I would do a full active day on a feature day. For example, um, every Saturday, uh, big TV meetings, York, Dante meeting, Chester, etc., on a regular day's betting, I would just rely on information and I'd have a quick scan of it. Uh, my betting scaled down unless it's a principal meeting. Okay, so what would your, uh, so what sort of scale would it be betting wise? Are you not frightened you're going to miss something because you've got to, you've got to do your job and. Yeah, I mean, it does happen sometimes. You have to accept it. A late message came in and something changed on the program. You get the message later on and you've missed the winner. I have to accept that as part of my job that the, the security of the regular income. I have to accept that's part of sometimes you'll miss a winning bet, and it can be bloody annoying, but it does happen. How reliable is the internet on, on out in the on the seven seas? Much better now. Um, <laughs> when it first started, um, and SBC members will know this. I said I'll run it from the ship, and the first year was disastrous. It was nothing like they claimed it would be. Um, now they've got the um, Elon Musk Starlink, so. It's pretty good. As long as you're not caught in a storm, it's pretty good and pretty reliable now. And can you get the racing channels? Um, you, you can stream it. Um, it's sometimes horses freeze mid-race, but that can be frustrating. So, so you don't bet in running then? No, there's no, there's no in running. You've got no edge on that at all. Okay, right. We're going to talk about at Reality TV in the next bit. Okay. Well, one of the people I first interviewed doing betting people was Steve Starkey. Mm -hmm. Steve Starkey's Amy Starkey's dad, who runs Newmarket Racecourse, amongst others. He right. is a professional punter on reality TV. Now, I didn't realise there was such a thing, but there is. And apparently you're one you're one of these people as well. Yeah, I love that label. You're one of these people. And um this was when I was betting full time as well. This was a part of the industry where even People I knew on race courses were like, "You're betting on that crap." <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of an edge there. Um, I remember having a chat with our anti-post manager one point uh, when I worked at the tote, and he said that that the only thing that they don't have an edge on because all they know is there's a list of people, and you're guessing their backgrounds. I mean, now internet can do a quick search, but I think one of my edges is having worked in entertainment so much. I know a bit of a background on some of these people, so. People with dance backgrounds who are going into Strictly Come Dancing have a huge advantage. So, what, so are there, well, I know there are because he told me, but you've got a little, what, so you see websites dedicated to sort of monitoring online polls and, um, you know, sort of sharing this sort of info. So have you got a little, a little network of uh, professional punting reality TV people that you sort of, that you get together There's there's a couple, I wouldn't say they're on a poll, but they, they have the same bets I do where we, we look for as soon as the lists come out. And um, Strictly is very interesting because Strictly doesn't release the list all at the same time. They tend to drip feed them one each day. And 
we've, we've all in between us in the past worked in the entertainment industry. So we know some of the people with their backgrounds. I mean, there was um, one of the girls strictly recently who had a background in dance, a uh, hell of an advantage. And the BBC or the ITV, whenever they do their shows, they always play it down and, oh, it's a different style of dance. It's a different competition altogether. It's like, yeah, but it's still somebody who's been trained and it has a real edge. I remember the, um, the Coronation Street actress who didn't win Dancing on Ice, which I think she got beat in the final and had a decent sized bet on her. Her dad was a professional ice skater. So I thought, as a kid, she must have gone to the rink a lot. <laughs> so this is the sort of stuff you try and ferret out that, you know, that's not in the public domain to try and get the edge. Yeah, um, a lot of it as well, it's, it's, it's pre-managed. Um, the idea of phone votes determining the winners, I've, I've long given up on that theory. Um, there's a lot that goes on. There's a, a strictly one, which I have to be careful talking about because I was told to shut up about it in the past. Um, there was a winner who, he was the only one who was available from the tour that year. So if he won, the tour could include the winner. If he didn't win, then they couldn't sell the tour tickets because only the runner-up or the third place could be on the tour that year. So they needed him to win, and he duly did. There was, um, you talk about the, the, the polls. Now, the, the guy that won, we don't want to date this too much, but the guy that won the uh, Britain's Got Talent recently, the, the the news everybody was saying it was a massive shock. He was actually top of the head, nine to four, second in on the machine. Though it might have been a massive shock to everybody watching at home, but it wasn't a massive shock to people on Betfair. Um, the fact that he won it suggests that the that the voting is quite straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the market move on that one, he he was nowhere to be considered initially. I mean, after the first audition, it, it, it was a it was a one-off gag. It was a guy could rip a, a safety jacket off and then and have another one on. And it was a gag which seemed funny. Um, on the semi-final night, uh, they've since released all the figures, he was 42% on the vote. Um, so the, the odds shifted on semi-finals. The young kid who was the choir singer, who was, I think he was favourite or second favourite, and the, the other dancing guy, when they released the semi-final results, it showed that how the public had fallen in love with this, what was a gimmick in effect. Yeah, what I did notice, look at that, because I was forced to watch it, my daughter and my wife love it. <laughs> I, there's only about 20 grand fielded on that, on that market on, on finals night. So would, would you resort to bookmakers? For that and would you get a, a, a bet worthwhile having on um you you could you can get a bet easily on those events i think um they they don't take a huge amount on it um i think where they're where they're more cagey is if you're betting before the first tv shows are on um if you're betting six to eight weeks ahead what do you know and what have you seen whereas once it's all in the public domain um on britain's got talent on x factor very similar as well but their contracts have changed now they when they win, they can do what they want work-wise. When that first started, those kind of shows, they were tied in for two years. So it made a lot more sense for Simon Cowell to have the winner he wanted. And do you get involved with the Eurovision Song Contest? Yes, massively so. <laughs> no, but I know that cassettes used to be passed around amongst people back in the old days, didn't they? Has a similar sort of thing happened? You, YouTube's killed a little bit the Eurovision betting now because um, every song is seen and played and there's there's a viewing um, streaming where you, you can tell who's been streamed one and a half, two million times before the show. So everyone's kind of got the edge. I mean, the Racing Post wrote a great column on it this year where I think they gave a 50 to one which place. They had the the, Eurovi the top European country in the right order. So they, they smashed it on that score this year. But definitely, I had a, a large each way bet. I lost small money on it. I had Finland each way because I saw that song with the 
crazy guy and just thought that's something novel, it's something original, and had a decent trade on it. Okay, right now, the, the from what I can gather, your main thing these at the moment is the Tom Seagal angle, I'm going to call it, um, mm-hmm. where you, well, we all know Tom's an amazing judge, but it's also very difficult to profit from price-wise these days because yeah. everybody's on the same horses. But you've got a, a unique approach to it. Can you tell us what you what it is you do? So what I formulated from it was, like you said, that Tom Seagal is a huge judge and he's also got a lot of contacts where he can speak to a yard and, and get a well-being of a horse, etc. What I found when I was working full-time was some days there were too many races to look at in the morning. Um, if there was 10, 12 races priced up, if Tom Segal had bets in six to eight of them, where do you start? And where's the filters come in? So I devised this um, system whereby, first of all, if he wasn't playing in a race, I'd drop the race. It gave me a smaller number to work with. I'd then focus on the races whereby he would be, in effect, one of my contacts and I'd use it accordingly. So sometimes I'd follow him in. Sometimes I'd take a different view and oppose it. Um, but it, it meant I was focusing on principal races on a principal betting day with what was in effect a reliable contact who I think long term he's great. But as a lot of in the in the column in SBC explains a lot of whereby he has to put something up. And that's the problem of price wise if you're trying to follow everything. So you said that you sometimes oppose him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're opposing Tom Seagal here. So what would you base your opposition on? Um, one of the things I think I use a lot more than Tom Seagal is uh, yard history and races. Um, I don't like backing a yard to win a race if they don't have a good form record in it. And vice versa, if a yard tends to target one, I'll overlook a horse's form if a trainer has a particular high hit rate in a particular contest. And that's something I don't think he often reads in his column. He's much more based on what the horse has done, whereas I'll be more on trainer trends. And where did you... You know, when did this sort of idea sort of pop into your head? You know, I'm going to start sort of filtering Tom's bets. So a, a section of my betting was always early price races. And that was just, it was just called that. And I kept it separate from my day-to-day betting. And then I think I just, it became overwhelmed where sometimes you'd open a racing post and there was, um, say, 10, 12 races price stuff. And that's in effect two race meetings. And you've got about an hour before the prices start shifting. So the cut down came probably 2004, five, when I went full time, I started focusing on less races, but thinking if Tom Seagal's found a betting angle in it, let's make that race more of a feature than the 20 runner handicap that nobody has an opinion on. And have you met Tom? I mean, does he know that you do this? Have you spoken to him about it? So I've not spoken to him about the filtering of this. I've, I've spoken to him on phones going back to when I worked in the industry. So with the, the the theory that he's got to put bets up to make the numbers up, is that something that you, you sort of assume or has he sort of said, yeah, well, you know? It's it's unwrittenly known that there are, there are times where uh, if there's TV racing on, there's got to be two to three bets in that column. And I think in the um, the old Mark Cotton book, Mark Cotton, who was the original price-wise formulator, he said something similar where, you can't write copy with at the end by saying, and I don't really fancy anything because that wouldn't sell a newspaper. So a value bet has to be found at the races that are featured on TV that day. Now, is this, this is something that I, I know that we talk about the Smart Betting Club in a bit, but this is something that you provide via the Smart Betting Club. Are you, do you sort of sell your advices? Are you like a tipster, a racing advisor, whatever, on the side to your punting? So we've had it free for um, close to two years. We, um, 
Pete, who runs the magazine, said you can write a free column and we'll monitor your results. So I'm all I'm all legal and above board there. And we've had clients free up until a few weeks ago, where it's now a paid service. Um, it's been doing about between 13 and 16 percent yield. And if you've got a limited number of clients, because obviously if you've got too many, they're not going to get the price. Then you're going to end up being a losing service, aren't you? If it's... Yes, that's correct. And that is the it's that betting pattern rule as well. If if you've all found the same horse and if 100 people want 100 pounds on a horse at 10 to 1 at the same time, it's a red flag. And that's something I've learned from the past is definitely got to keep it restrictive for the sake of betting patterns um, get seen. Um, my wife's betting account was closed shortly after mine with one firm where they noticed her betting patterns are very similar to mine. Yeah, but you're going to prison for that. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I mean, this this idea of filtering tipsters, you know, to get just to get what they really fancy. There's a lot of tips, especially if you're involved with the Smart Betting Club, there's a lot of tipsters out there that are very genuine and they are very profitable. But they could be a lot more profitable if you could filter them out. Have you looked at the possibility of doing a similar thing to what you do with Tom? to a another there's yes there is one um i don't know if you can say i can tell you off the record but there's, there's one service i'm currently a member of who i'm doing something similar now where there's a certain percentage where the hit rate is a lot higher than at the higher ends of the market he's had one big price winner but everything else has fallen in a certain bracket so i'm focusing more on that now and that's something i wouldn't say i'm actively betting them right now but i've definitely got an eye on that with a view to the future uh, and are you liaising with that tipster to sort of suggest that maybe maybe it's something they're totally unaware of that they're doing wrong that might help their uh, help their sort of um strike rate anyway so i i kind of wrote this myself a couple of weeks back that uh, i've been with them about six months and the pattern if you've if you grouped it into odds categories there's a clearly a strength in a certain odds category so uh, i'll probably keep an eye on it for a few more months and if it's repeating itself if it becomes that obvious yes i would contact i'm in touch with the said tipster so i would have no problem emailing him and saying have you looked at this angle as uh quite significantly stronger than the overall service and you brief you've briefly talk about uh golf you mentioned you bet on the golf as well what's your mm -hmm. angle with that um golf so, so the four majors and the Ryder cup would be my five betting events for the year um i love the fact that i know that bookies want people to buy into these tournaments because then they want you to be a golf better every week. And the each way angle, the odds are so generous in some of the tournaments. I mean, the Masters paying sometimes first eight, first 10 in a, a tournament, which a lot of the old boys at the bottom are almost there by honor and degree. So I love the fact of I'll have an in-depth study starting about the Sunday. And then on the Wednesday, I'll use sportinglife.com. I'll use Steve Palmer and I'll use my own opinions. And we'll generally back three or four players for the tournament. And work your way through the bookmakers until they close you all down, I suppose. <laughs> so, so again, because I'm not a regular golf better, it's not a bad thing where, like you said, they're in Newmarket. We've got so many shops here in Newmarket. I think we've got every every firm is covered on the high street. So if I'm a casual golf better, um, I can kind of get them on for the major tournaments. I just look like a, a guy who likes TV golf. Okay, right. And finally, Paul, um, you, you, you seem to be very happy doing what you do on the cruise ship, spin it all up. Is there ever a time when you think there'll be enough mileage in betting to do it full time again, or are you happy combining your two lives? Um, so looking to get off ships, um, if not immediately in the next couple of years, um, I'm looking for an outlet off the ships now. Um, we're mortgage free now, uh, not all to betting, but it's helped. Um, so lifestyle's changed a bit. My 
my well-paid entertainment's job tax-free is not as essential as it was when I had a mortgage and when I was funding everything. Um, there's less living costs now. Um, whatever job I do, it will be less than what I do on the ships. It will also be home-based uh, and I'll never give up the Benny. The Benny will always be at least a side job. Um, if I could make it pay full-time with the sort of income I'd look for, and definitely that's that's the dream job. I had it once and it'd be nice to have again. Okay, finally, you mentioned that. So is your your service, even though it's paid for now, still only available through Smart Betting Club? Yeah, Smart Betting Club run all the admin side of the service. And then I just put the racing messages up of, of a morning on days that we're betting. Okay, well, that's brilliant, Paul. Uh, Paul Chanderburns, thank you very much.